0: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
2: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
3: Hi, I'm Nevena Senior and you are listening to Sorry Partner.
4: Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with Bulgarian English champion Novena Sr. about the experience of learning to play behind the Iron Curtain, the problem with taking the middle ground and her competitive spirit. Plus, she shares her top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. How are you, Jocelyn? I'm great, Catherine. How are you? Oh, I am very good. I have been saving this up for you because I know you're going to enjoy it. Oh, yeah. So, everybody, I forwarded Jocelyn some very exciting news the other day that I had. Oh, yeah. My yeah, yeah, yeah. My next rank promotion, super, super exciting. I'm now a silver life master. And um, I was, as I said to you, quite surprised because I knew that I was significantly off in terms of some pigmented points and figured I'd probably have to play a couple of big tournaments if I was going to be jumping to my next rank anytime soon. But I got another email from the ACBL and guess what? 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 Due to a reporting error, you were recently sent an automated email notifying you of a rank chain. No. This is not your correct rank. Oh. I thought you'd like that. I thought I'd save it up and share it with you on the program. Oh. I know. I know. It's just devastating. I'm devastated for you. Oh, thanks, John. Look, it, it felt like somehow I had gotten something I wasn't entitled to, which it turns out is the case. So I, I, it didn't quite resonate with me. You know, I wasn't like, oh, I've been waiting for this. You know, I was actually quite happy. I thought, well, right, that was easier right. than I expected. But it has not hit me as a huge surprise, but I did think it was very funny.
2: Well, I feel terrible for you. I feel like it reminds me when you hear about colleges sending out email acceptances to like 5,000 more students than they actually intended to admit. How can you fix that? And they should just give you the the promotion. Yeah, they should. They should. To compensate you for the pain and suffering. That's right. That's right. (laughs) The intense (laughs) pain and
4: suffering that I have experienced since the news of the era, the grievous
2: era. I mean, we've talked about this before. I experienced something. It's not the same at all, but it was like getting this cold water news that, no, I did not just make Life Master. I just made Some other rank that was below Life Master, right when I was expecting, because they had me in as needing the 500 instead of the 300 because there had been a lapse in my membership that I had not been aware of. Anyway, I remember that feeling. I was just so bummed.
4: Yeah. Well, and rightly so. You know, we all want these rank promotions, even though we know they're meaningless in the whole scheme of things. But yes, yes, I'm glad I hadn't been, you know, hanging on it and then had my hopes dashed. Oh, my goodness. But this does give me a very smooth opportunity to say a belated congratulations to Beth from her friend Tracy. Tracy wrote to us because she wanted to congratulate her friend Beth on becoming a new life master. And I know that we'd mentioned it in passing, but we didn't actually say Beth's name. So
2: congratulations, Beth. Way to go. Woohoo. Yeah, l- let's hope that it doesn't get rescinded. By the <laughs> due to a reporting error. <laughs> Hope it sticks, Beth. Hi, everyone. While we have your attention, we did want to ask for your support. Any amount you can give would be most appreciated. It's quite easy. You just go to our website, sorrypartner.com, click on the Support the Show tab, and it'll take you to our secure Patreon page. Thanks very much. Now, back to the show. Jocelyn,
4: it's time for our letters segment. Oh, do we have letters this week? (laughs) We do have letters. Oh,
2: wow. Excellent. Excellent.
4: Our first letter today is from Alan in New York. And this is about the importance of asking the opponents the meaning of their alerted bids. Hi, Catherine and Jocelyn. I had a strange experience recently, which I think your listeners could learn from. My partner and I play a strong club system. And before each round, we pre-alert the opponents to this fact. As you should and very nice. During one board, partner opened one club, which I alerted. The next player passed and I replied one heart, which my partner alerted. The next player verified that both of these bids had been alerted, but when we offered to explain their meanings, she declined, saying she didn't want to know what they meant. (laughs) Fair enough. She then doubled. My partner passed, and the doubler's partner bid a natural one spade. I doubled, and the original doubler leapt to four spades, still without knowing what our bids had meant. What the opponents didn't ask about was that the one club bid showed that my partner had at least 16 high card points. could have had a hand of any shape and my one heart response meant that I was strong enough to be in game, thought that slam was unlikely and again could have had any shape. We didn't know anything about each other's hands except that we should be in game but probably not slam. Since the opponents had already pushed the auction to four spades and we didn't know if we had a fit but knew we weren't interested in slam, the only reasonable choice we had left was to double The opponents went for a number, giving us the top board. The lesson to learn is that if you're going to enter the auction after your opponents have made alertable bids, ask what their bids mean and double check that you know what they mean before you make a plan and that your plan still makes sense. More knowledge is always better than remaining ignorant of what the
2: opponents are doing. Keep up the good work, Alan. Okay, I have a few reactions to this letter, I have to say. What you give up by asking opponents is the possibility that the opponents don't agree on what the alerts mean. Now, you would think in a strong club system, they probably have the one club and the one heart response pretty much down. And so it's pretty safe. But a lot of times I've seen opponents don't want to know because they don't want any disconnect to surface. Sure. I I mean, because I had a situation that I don't know if anything could have been done to to rectify the situation, but I opened a diamond. My left-hand opponent overcalled two clubs. My partner leapt to three spades, which I alerted. And the auction came back around to me and I said five diamonds. I thought that she was showing me a singleton. A singleton spade in support of diamonds. She didn't realize that we played splinters over minors. She knew we played them over majors. So it was just a situation where at the end of the auction, they asked about what the alerts meant, and it was...
4: Yeah, but the difference here is that you were the opener. Alan's situation, it was the overcaller. Sure. But I think that you would have behaved differently if you'd been in the other seats because if you've already seen an opening bid by the opposition and some kind of response from the opposition what kind of hand are you going to have to jump to four you'd have a very very shapely hand
2: oh for sure for sure they were taking a risk but mm. it de- depending on you know maybe they thought they that maybe they thought that the opponents had game and yeah. their game wouldn't go that far off i mean it it's it sounds a little Rash, and if they were <laughs> vulnerable, even more so, but at the same time, i'm just I just think that there is I've seen plenty of situations where it is inadvisable to surface the the meanings because it gives the opponents an opportunity to get in sync. But as I said, in that situation, it's very unlikely that these opponents would have forgotten or that you know that this pair would have forgotten the meaning of one club and one heart response. So I agree in that a situ- Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And of course, if it's a situation where it's essentially a sacrifice, maybe right. you don't want to know and you're just going to go to where you're going to right. go. But that decision is, is a nuanced decision in itself. Isn't it? Anyway, either way, yeah. whatever, whatever their reasoning, they got it wrong and it backfired.
2: <laughs> and it backfired in that situation. And I'm sure there are plenty of times when it would.
4: Yeah. So note to selves, Think twice before you don't ask what the <laughs> opponent's <laughs> alerted bids mean.
2: Or before you ask.
4: Just a good idea in general to think. Excellent tip. I need to do more of that. Our next letter is a travel story, Jocelyn, and this is from Mertis. Hi, Mertis, Thanks for writing. Hi, Catherine and Jocelyn. I have a travel story for you about my experience in the magical town of San Miguel de Aende. San Miguel is a town of 100,000 with approximately 8,000 expats and two ACBL-accredited clubs. Wow. Our kind of place, Catherine. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That sounds good. I've heard it's beautiful, too. Yeah. At one of the clubs, Bordello Bridge, Bridge is played al fresco in a converted bordello, which is now a beautiful bed and breakfast. I suspect it is the only bridge club in the world located in a former bordello, and to make things more interesting... The ghosts of former ladies of the night appear often enough to require the services of a resident shaman who regularly cleanses the hotel of the ghosts, at least the bad ghosts. Apparently there are good and bad ghosts. Who knew? The first time the shaman came, he identified one spot where he felt the spirit, and it turns out that a lady of the night had been murdered at that exact location many years ago. Okay, slight dampening of the fun tone at Bordello Bridge. The club is full of colourful characters. I was once playing against two 93-year-olds, one of whom berated his partner when he made a mistake, telling him, Jerry, that's the last time I'm going to let you play croquet all morning before you come to the bridge club. (laughs) You wild, you wild man, you. That's right. That's right. Drinking your coffee all morning at the croquet club. Anyway, she says, it's a very friendly game. I love your podcast. Long
2: live sorry, partner. Best, Mertis. Wow. I mean, ghosts, a bordello, bridge. You wouldn't think necessarily that these three things could coexist, but. Right. We
4: often ask our guests about the most interesting places to play. So, (laughs) you know, people, if you're out there and you've got a fun story about playing somewhere really unique, we definitely want you to let us know. And our final story today, Jocelyn, is on a topic I know you're fond of, brain farts. <laughs> Unfortunately,
2: <laughs> I'm so familiar with them.
4: I think we all are, but I love the way you say it. Anyway, dear ladies, I had a whopper brain fart recently. I was playing at a face-to-face sectional and after my partner responded five diamonds to my bid of 4 no trump, Roman keycard Blackwood, my right-hand opponent asked what my partner's bid meant. I replied, we're playing 1430, so that means he has one or four key cards. (laughs) I blithely proceeded to sign off in five spades, missing a cold slam, not realizing that my partner had correctly shown three key cards. In fact, two aces and the king of trumps. He, of course, could not take advantage of that unauthorized information. As a result, we tied for bottom on the board, placing second in section C when an average would have had us win. Everyone goofs up sometimes, but what made this particularly egregious was that I had made exactly the same mistake a year or so before, although with a different partner, which nobody knew until now. He signs off by saying, keep up the good work. And then, I love the kibbutz sessions. Thanks so much, Lou. It would be interesting to learn how a Yiddish word became part of bridge parlance. I agree. I'm going to look into that. And this is from Lou from New Jersey.
2: Oh, well, that's just great. I love everything about that letter. I guess, especially the brain farts, which are always just so gratifying to hear about from our <laughs> guests. I know. Maybe they really have to reach down deep to come up with a good brain fart story. But yes, very much appreciated by all. So if you have any fun stories about brain farts or ghosts or bordellos or alerts, Really, any fun story at all, please do send them to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on Instagram. Or you can send us a voice message, and these links are in the show notes and on the website at sorrypartner.com, along with some other good stuff.
4: Coming up next, our interview with Nevena Senior. And note, this episode comes with bonus
2: audio for our Patreon supporters. Bulgarian English champion, Novena Sr. started playing bridge at university and in 1987 won the European Ladies' Pairs. Since moving to England, she has placed second and third twice in the Venice Cup and has won two Women's World Olympiads and two Women's European Championships.
3: We began by asking how she learned to play. I was studying maths at university and lots of people around me were playing bridge. They they weren't tournament players, but they would go to clubs and in between lectures and whatever they would play bridge. And my boyfriend at the time, who later became my husband and later became ex-husband, he was playing bridge and he really wanted to teach me how to play because quite often he wanted to spend time with me, but they will call him to play bridge, and he would think, like, oh, it would be wonderful if you start playing bridge. Then we can be together, and then I can play bridge at the same time. And this is the way it started. And to be fair, soon after, when I started understanding a little bit of what I was doing, I got hooked on it.
4: And did you exceed his skill level fairly quickly?
3: Yes. Definitely. He was one of these people that always lacked competitiveness. He loved bridge for all the card combinations. Like He was a very good mathematician. He ended up teaching maths at the university itself later on. But he never had the desire to necessarily win. He would look at the hands and he would think about all the options. And when he was playing competition, he was wasting his time thinking about the unnecessary things. And his favourite thing was to play bridge at home with friends.
4: So do you think that that was a key difference, that you had that competitiveness that you want to win?
3: Yes, because like I'm interested the same way as he is in the game, like analysing every hand, what I could have done. Like when playing the hand, I always think what the opposition has and whatever because making a decision. But as well, I, the competitive side was something which was very attractive to me. So
4: you you like to win? Yes,
3: I do.
2: When he was teaching you, was it basically like he was your sole source of bridge education? Or were you also reading books or looking at magazines about bridge to round out your education so it wasn't all with him?
3: Uh, Definitely, I was reading a lot, both magazines and books, like they were difficult because at the time I lived in Bulgaria and it was during the communism. So unlike other countries, in Bulgaria, bridge was not forbidden or anything. On the contrary, it still recognized as a sport and uh, bridge was part of the sport union but there weren't bridge books in Bulgarian, so you, ha- you had to find them from abroad. And that was more difficult because all sorts of literature from the Western countries was very difficult to get your hands on. But the Polish Bridge Union had a fantastic magazine, which we were able to buy every month, like all the editions. And I used a lot of the Polish Bridge magazine to learn. They had good quizzes, reports, from tournaments, bidding systems, I really loved it. And as well, I because of the lack of competitiveness in my ex-husband, I quite soon abandoned him and started playing with other people who were better players. And I learned a lot from playing with better players than myself. And I was moving on from one to another. Like once I became as good as someone. I would move to an even better player, and I always listened to what they said. It doesn't mean that I never argued with them. If I didn't understand something, I was always questioned, but I wanted to learn and did never argue for no reason, just for the argument, only when I didn't understand something.
2: Do you remember any particular books that you read when you were starting out that you were able to get your hands
3: on? Okay, I have to tell you that one of the books that I tried to read was something in French, because I speak French, by a French author. I've forgotten the name now, which was on Squeezes. And as I say, I tried to read it. It was so difficult and whatever, but I did learn a little bit. It was a very good book, but probably my level of bridge player was not good enough to follow everything and i even gave up and said to all my partners if a can is to be made by a squeeze you should know that i'm never going to make it because i don't understand it and teammates like oh don't tell me like oh the slam is making on a squeeze you should know that i will go down in the other room if i'm in a slam and then suddenly at some tournament by a miracle i made a double squeeze without realizing that I made it. And I was playing with one of these partners who stood and shouted to the whole room, she made the squeeze. (laughs) That's great. And so you never had to read a bridge book about squeezes in French or in English or in any language. (laughs) Yes, I continued trying and whatever. And then a time in my life came when I did, probably I already had learned the basics and whatever, but It was a question of seeing the cards, how it is going to go and what the ending was going to be. When I wasn't experienced enough, I couldn't foresee what exactly was going to happen and I was getting in a muddle. But once I started seeing like five tricks from now, it became easier.
4: How did that happen for you? Do you have a sense of what level of experience or understanding or what point in your understanding you had reached or if something had changed that allowed you to suddenly understand or foresee how the hands were going to play out?
3: Uh, I think it came with practice. I I cannot put a number of years and whatever but I'm basically very good with seeing patterns which is not only in bridge but like let's say at some point in my life I was doing a little bit of football batting and I was seeing patterns like following one team when they do well when they do badly and things like that and I think with practice I started just seeing patterns in the way the hand is developed and whatever and started seeing the things further.
4: So when you're declaring a hand do you immediately jump to the end point understand what point you want to get to and then plan the play from there or does it evolve as you're playing the hand or a little bit of both?
3: Now these days I immediately start from one to know what I'm going to do and this is another thing which develops with practice and whatever you have a plan but as well you should be able if things not go really according to plan to be able to change the plan I have seen bridge players not that experience they get stuck with what is in their heads and don't notice like you expect some suit to be breaking one way and then suddenly it breaks a different way and that might make you change completely what you were trying to achieve. But they can't pivot. Yes. They start playing the hand one way, like I'm going to take finesse and then I'm going to try this break and whatever. And when an things thing happens, they're not able to switch from one plan to another.
2: Yeah, I've been there.
3: I have been there as well. <laughs> it's not that I've never been, but I play a lot, and now lots of things have come automatic in my head.
4: Novena, I'd like to ask you just a follow-up question about something you said closer to when we started talking. Am I right in understanding that bridge books tended to be banned in other communist countries when you learned to play, that you weren't able to get hold of them?
3: Yeah, not in Bulgaria. In Bulgaria, all the Western books, not only bridge books. They had to be scrutinized before they are published. And we actually were able to read a lot of French books and whatever, but always the classics because the government was afraid of anti-communist propaganda or whatever. And the thing about British books is there was no reason for them not to be Allowed, yeah, because as as I said, the government was even supporting bridge in Bulgaria, but because there was limited interest, they couldn't be bothered to import enough bridge books.
4: But were bridge books banned in other countries, or was it just
3: that all books were hard to get hold of? As far as I know, bridge was banned in Romania at some point.
4: Was it because they thought it was gambling, or was there a concern about it being a coded language?
3: Okay, the story with Romania, which I have heard, is that originally everything was okay, and even their dictator, Charles his son was a bridge player. So he persuaded his father to allow a Romanian national team to go to a European championship, bridge championship, and the state sponsored this trip. And then at least half of the players... Defected and didn't return, and why the bridge was banned because they considered bad Western influence. That's the story I have heard of Romania. As far as I know, in Russia it wasn't exactly banned, but it wasn't supported. I mean, Soviet Union, not Russia, because it was considered a capitalist game or whatever, bad influence. At the same time, we did have some competition of the socialist countries, but Russia, for instance, never played in this, so they probably didn't have it organized, because now Russia is one of the very strong countries in bridge, but I'm talking around the 1980s. Once a year, there was the championship of the socialist country, and Hungary, Poland, Bulgaria, and Czech Republic, which at the time was Czechoslovakia, were always participating. Occasionally Yugoslavian players will play, but we never had Russians. Interesting.
2: What do you think your regular partners, or if you think of a specific partner, would say is your greatest strength when it comes to playing bridge?
3: Quite a lot of people will say that I make tricks from nowhere. So maybe (laughs) uh, like people, uh, I think the majority of my partners think that my declarer play is the best part of my game but frankly because I play with so many people like uh, I can never say that I have one regular partner and probably with all of them we are a bit cautious in the bidding and in the defense and whatever and we don't get necessarily the best out of the partnership if you play with too many people you always have the problem like am I playing this system with this person or with another person and I <laughs> I have to tell you that it has happened to me in a European championship or world championship, but I I, I don't remember where where we were with screens and a strange bidding sequence came. And because I couldn't see my partner, I just stood there and I said, remind yourself with whom you are playing. (laughs) You know what this sequence means.
2: Who is that person?
3: And what uh, I'm saying is like quite often like, in the beginning I will tend not to make the best possible bit in my head. Like I think about a bit and I'm think like, oh, that will really describe my hand. But I don't dare doing it just in case partner doesn't remember the system or I don't remember the system. So I'll choose the middle of the road bit that is not compromising that much. And sometimes it's not the most successful thing that one could do.
2: Why do you have so many partners?
3: The main thing is because I'm a professional bridge player. I play with lots of children and even like uh, in big competitions, I have played professionally and so on. And it just the way it is.
2: And when you're playing with a student, you defer to what card they want to play. And so you have to, you can't get them all onto a It depends.
3: Card. Like some of them agree to play what i tell them to do and with people like that i try to give them as little convention as possible firstly because i'm not sure that they'll remember lots of conventions then it is more than the saying we'll play this convention you have to go through everything that happens afterwards and so on and it becomes more difficult Some of them just don't have the memory to remember all these things. But I have some others that love to play systems and they give me and they say, we are going to play that. Most of the time I agree. If there is something that I I think is completely unnecessary and whatever, I will say, no, we are not playing that. Basically, if someone asks me to play something, I would play it. I was better when I was younger because my memory was very good. Now I'm aging and my memory is not that good. But I used to say I would play their system because I trust my memory to remember rather than their memory to remember what I tell them. Yeah. So
2: would you say then a necessary consequence of this is that, as you were saying, you're not able to get to the right contract because your auctions are stymied by this tendency to just take the middle road and not explore the avenues that could yield the best slam.
3: Yes, definitely. Like, I'm not saying that it happens very often, but it has happened. Like, I I know what bit I should make, and then I don't dare doing it to avoid disaster and thinking like, Okay, maybe we will miss a slum now, but in any case the slum might not be making rather than bidding a slum that is destined to go down or whatever. And there was a middle of the road bit which was would have been better, but I didn't dare doing it and just settled for not bidding the slum, let's say.
2: I'm wondering, have you noticed that there's a particular situation that you find yourself in maybe repeatedly, that it's just, if only they knew this one, if we had this one agreement really firmly nailed down, or is it just such a wide variety of things that it could be from one game to the next?
3: I've come across a variety of things, and that could be better. Like, For instance, one of the things that I believe is that in a situation when one of the hands has not limited itself, even if the other hand uh, has been limited, if they cube it below game, it doesn't show extras. Like, let's say I have said that I have 15 to 17 points, but I don't know how strong partner is and we are trying for a slam. I would make a qubit below game with a 15 count, the minimum and whatever, because I don't know what partner has. But there are some people who think that if you cube it, that should definitely be showing the upper range. And for instance, when you discuss system with let's say a new partner it is too subtle to put it as an agreement you usually say something like if in doubt a bit is always forcing or if in doubt a double is always take out and whatever but you don't think about all the little things that might happen to put them as a set in stone basic rule
4: so more principles or a general understanding yeah Do you have a favourite tournament that you like to play?
3: Yes, one of my favourite tournaments is the tournament in Iceland. It happens every year in January. I absolutely adore it because the field is very strong and almost all your opponents are extremely competent and it's really a pleasure playing in a tournament like that.
2: You are not the first one of our guests. Who has mentioned that tournament? Yeah, it's making me very interested in checking it out.
3: (laughs) Yeah, please do. It's fantastic, Uh, and although it is like always covered with snow, everything is so well organized and transport and uh, whatever. It's always warm inside. (laughs) Well, that's good. (laughs) Yeah, it's not like because like both in Bulgaria and in England, it's not that well. Heat it and whatever, but in Iceland I've never seen a that like the warm We've been to one year to not into in the main hotel something cheaper and more affordable, and it was fantastic
2: well they have all those mineral springs that are keeping everything warm and uh,
3: not where the bridge is <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh you're not playing bridge in the hot springs and the
4: geysers no. <laughs> What about after the tournament? How do you like to
3: unwind? Uh, it's uh, difficult to describe it because if the tournament is over, I would like to go ho- back home as soon as possible and do my usual stuff. What's that? Do quite a lot of like play computer games, or do crosswords. I actually like cooking and just ordinary.
4: But are you very tired um, after the tournament?
3: To be fair, I have always been tired after the Europeans or World Championship, mainly because uh, they are longer, like they are at least a weekend, whatever. I'm not so tired after something like Iceland, which is four days. But like when the day is over, I would like to go out and eat something nice and have a couple of glasses of wine and uh, don't mind going through the hands, but not too much, not every hand. It's good, like with teammates or partner, to sit at the table and go through very quickly through interesting hands, but not dwell on every single hand. It it's just too tiring. Uh, if you had played 48 balls, let's say, or 60 or whatever, the last thing you need is to go through every single hand in the evening. But nothing wrong to discuss something that someone found difficult or funny. They've done particularly badly or particularly well.
4: During a tournament, do you ever find yourself feeling nervous or uncomfortable or have a reaction that makes you play less well than you would like to play?
3: I don't think so. When I'm at a tournament, especially this European or World Championship, which lasts over a week, I'm pretty focused on the bridge. And, of course, like something really bad might happen, let's say, at home or to a friend and that will take me out of order but there aren't any like of course I'm a bit nervous especially when we reach the knockout stage it's like uh, I always have my stomach churning before sitting at the table but I've never encountered anything that made me play worse than I would have played like I obviously have made mistakes or bad decisions but it's just part of the normal bridge life rather than something has provoked them
2: right okay So while I understand you you don't play bridge in the geysers, has there ever been a really interesting or unexpected or memorable place that you have played bridge, even if it's not in a hot spring?
3: Okay, I have been a couple of times to Alexandria. That was an interesting experience. And yes, we have been to lots of exotic places, but we never have enough time to go and sightseeing. as I said, when before the bridge, I don't want to have sightseeing or anything because I want to focus on the bridge. And after the bridge, I'm eager to go uh, come back home. So I never leave anything.
4: Have you ever played bridge on a camel?
3: <laughs> no. <laughs> what about on a boat, on a train? Uh, yes, when I was younger, while I still live in Bulgaria, quite often with friends who will play bridge on a train. And we played once at an airport, uh, I think it was in 2000. There was a world championship in Bermuda and I wasn't part of the England team, but um, my husband was doing the bulletin there and I found a very cheap return ticket. So I went to watch a little bit of the bridge and on the way back, there was some weather problems. So we were delayed by four hours and we played bridge at the airport.
4: Was it just the circle that you were with or did
3: you rope in other people? We roped in other people as well. It was international. Because lots of people were flying that day, it was actually only the final was played and lots of people were catching plane the last day of the final because they had finished playing. So I remember that this was the first time I played with Nico Smith, who is one of my partners these days. And we had some people from Switzerland, and just people that we didn't know. They joined in and we played.
4: Were you sitting on the floor?
3: Yes, we were.
2: I love this story. It's wonderful.
3: Yeah, there weren't appropriate tables, so we actually sat on the floor and played. So you always have to have a deck of cards at the ready. Yes, but the thing is, like in, in the championship, they, they always give you a goodie bag that contains a pack of cards. So plenty of people have a pack of cards.
2: <laughs> is there a hot-button issue in Bridge today that is particularly important to you?
3: Okay, I'm concerned with the cheating, obviously. I think it's absolutely outrageous for some people were doing, even at the low-level cheating and whatever, but I'm quite passionate about the low-level cheating, that people need better education about it, what is cheating and what is not cheating, because the numbers are going down, the number of players going down. The last thing that we need is to ban club players because they have cheated. We need to explain, probably to reinforce something that they should know, but somehow they don't know it that what's the point of playing bridge if you are going to cheat? Like play a different card game that cheating is accepted. Bridge is such a wonderful game and you should be proud of what you achieve by your mental process rather than peeping into opponent's cards or exchanging information with partner. But some of the low-level cheating, I'm sure just people should be warned and explain to rather than bunt for three years when the bridge clubs are struggling to fill enough tables to justify putting the hitting on
4: So what do you mean by low-level cheating? Do you mean when it's not a champion play?
3: Yes, I'm talking about, let's say, club games. Yeah. Quite often people do take advantage of hesitation and no one is going to ban them for that. But like what happens is if you follow the director, uh they feel offended and whatever. So we just need to have a little bit more campaign of education about the club level games, that things like taking the bandage of hesitation is not on And people should try to avoid it rather than constantly having to call the director. And they they somehow don't understand. I've come across that not only in in the clubs, but on BBO. Obviously, on BBO, someone might be hesitating because their doorbell rang. We don't know what's happening. Sure. But there is a hesitation. And then their partner bid on after a response to a black hole. That's obvious that they have taken advantage of the hesitation and you call the director and they get offended and whatever. Uh, like maybe some of these people even don't know that they're not supposed to be doing that. I don't know them when playing on BBO. But during lockdown a few people in England were banned for alleged or even proven online cheating and they were club players and whatever. I wouldn't ban them straight away. I would give them a period and have a An hour conversation with them, trying to explain to them why, what they are doing and even tell them like, the thing is, people say, yeah, we offer them to confess and then they would have, but they don't want to confess. It's not about the confession. You want them to stop doing it rather than them admitting. They will be embarrassed to admit it. Just do something before banning them.
4: See, for me, if someone's cheating, they're deliberately cheating. To me, that's worse than someone doesn't realize there's a hesitation. I can understand they don't understand. But when you have a conscious understanding that you're doing something that other people might frown upon, sure, maybe you don't ban them. But I think the response needs to be quite different. I mean, I had a situation when I was a fairly inexperienced player where I didn't realize I was cheating. I was asking something in the auction. And to this day, I still feel embarrassed because the director was called and a oh, real fuss was made. I really, I hadn't intended to cheat. I, I didn't even understand for quite a long time that what I had done was considered cheating. So of course, I'm very sympathetic to anyone in that situation. I'd hate for anyone to feel uncomfortable. But if you're cheating online and you know you're cheating.
2: Yeah, yeah. if you're if, if you're somehow communicating with partner by phone while you're playing on the on BBO or something like that, you know that's wrong.
3: Yes, that's definitely wrong and whatever. But what about like a husband and wife in their eighties? One of them is in one room, the other one is in the other room, and they come to phone or Trump. Oh, I have a void. What do I do now?
2: <laughs> you can't do that when when there are other people.
3: No, no, I know i I'm not saying that it is right, and whatever, but these people probably they wouldn't realize that this is exactly what they are not supposed to be doing, and whatever, and more education is needed to
2: yeah uh, maybe to... if they did if they really didn't realize yeah,
3: no, happen. because quite a lot of people who went online during lockdown, they have never played online bridge before, they took it up because this was the only thing available and they probably, I'm giving the examples, people living in the same house. and Sure.
4: So you think we should just maybe cut some people a little more slack and there's situations where we could maybe explain a little more, have a slightly more generous.
3: Yeah, I I really think we should leave it up to the person running the duplicate, whether it's a director or just a a member of staff and whatever, if there are any concerns talk to the people before start banning them or reporting them to a national authority.
2: Is there anything that you find particularly annoying about bridge?
3: Yes, when people are extremely slow. Like it drives me And obviously like it happens more often online. And as I say, it could be someone's bell ringing or they need to take some washing of the dryer or whatever. But uh, slow play, just I lose the plot if I have to wait. What do you do? I actually, if it is online, I go and have a cigarette in my smoking <laughs> room. And I keep the computer because the connection, the, the thing is that well, the internet in the smoking room is not good enough, so I can't play from there, but I leave it just to, to the door so that I can hear when someone had clicked on a card and I come back. That's good. And uh, frankly, for face-to-face bridge, I have been known in European and World Championship to have a book of crosswords. And if someone goes into the tank, I take the, my crosswords and start filling them.
2: I just had a feeling you were going to say that, that that's what you would do. Because sitting there is so annoying. Yes. Yeah. What's the funniest thing that's ever happened when you've been playing
3: bridge? Okay, I I frankly find this thing Funny when I I was trying to remember who exactly I'm playing with because there were screens. It didn't take me long, but afterwards I thought it was very funny that I just momentarily lost the float and wasn't 100% sure who I'm playing with. Uh, What else? I don't know. We've always had a good time, like in the England ladies' teams, after the bridge. We've been to Japan playing bridge and then there was a party in, I was sharing a room with Heather Dondi and we had a party in our room and the next day when we came back to the room we saw the cleaner was still cleaning this room and we were hiding because we were so embarrassed for her to see who had created this mess. <laughs> it was that bad? It was that bad, yeah. We had about
0: 20 <laughs> people
3: uh, drinking and smoking and whatever up to until 3 o'clock. And it was disgusting. And then we left in the morning. And when we came back, the the woman was still cleaning. And we immediately ran away so that she doesn't... (laughs) (laughs) Are there any bridge conventions that you
2: particularly like and that you would love if all of your partners
3: were to adopt? I actually prefer to play with less conventions. But on the rare occasion, when they make me play a multi, I want to play specific responses to a multi. But um, unfortunately, most of my partners don't want to play them because they find them too complicated.
2: Are there any conventions that when your partners ask you to play, your heart just sinks because you hate that convention so much?
3: Yes, Gerber. That one is a very popular answer to that question.
2: (laughs) Why do you hate it so much?
3: Because it's useless and whatever. Like, we all play a Roman key card, which means we are interested to know the King of Trumps and the Queen of Trumps and whatever. How suddenly, over one no Trump, four clubs will ask for aces. What is the type of hand that couldn't show a suit and whatever? It just completely... Useless, much better use for high-level transfer or something similar.
2: What's the best bridge advice or tip that you've ever been given?
3: Probably it goes back to my new thing bridge that I should count the hands in both declaring and defending. I should try to think about the whole hand and try to count the distribution before committing to single suits and whatever,
2: and how do you do that? How do you process it? Is it a visual picture of the pattern and you're slotting the cards into place? Yes, uh, I see them as numbers. you see them as numbers, yeah, like four, four, three two. I see the pattern, yeah, Navena,
4: thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. Thanks so
2: much. It's been wonderful.
3: Thank you for inviting me. It has been a pleasure. Thank
2: you.
4: And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Novena Senior.
2: Thank you also to our Sorry Partner posse of listener supporters who make the show possible.
4: Sorry Partner is produced by Katherine Harris with production assistance from Jade Gray. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and
2: produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to Sorry Partner Podcast at gmail.com or at Sorry Partner Podcast on Instagram or send us a voice message and please consider supporting the show. You'll get a monthly newsletter, bonus audio from time to time and other supporter perks these links and a link to our discount offers and merch store are under the episode description in your app on the website at sorrypartner.com or wherever you like to listen we'd love to hear from you but be nice or we'll call the director until next time play well
4: may all your finesses be on side and remember as novena says Whether you're declaring or defending, think about the whole hand and try to count the distribution. Thank you, partner.
2: Easier said than done. Thank you, partner. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye.